you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at Mark 6, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus went away from there, and there is uh, probably Jairus' house from Mark chapter 5. And he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed oil, many who were sick, and healed them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would see Jesus in this passage. I pray that we would love him more, worship him more, rest in him more, believe in him more. Father, would we see Jesus and worship him in spirit and in truth, and would we, uh, through our time, uh, strengthen and be strengthened by your spirit and your word, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think uh, there's an object lesson that's happening in our passage that I think it demands that we sort of put it in its context. I think there's a larger frame that Mark uh, has crafted his gospel around, and it, it, it hinges off of, uh, I think, these three important things. First, you see Jesus leading, right? Uh, and where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from Mark chapter 4. When Jesus taught, it was Jesus who said to the disciples, let us go now to the other side. And the disciples got into the boat because Jesus told them and they went to the other side. When they got out of the boat, Mark actually says that when Jesus touched the ground, At that point, the demon-possessed man ran at him. Jesus did business there, and then it was Jesus who says, hey, let's go back to the other side, and Jesus went back to the other side, and the disciples were kind of in the wing, and they watched Jesus interact with Jairus, and then the woman with the issue of blood, and Mark actually says that they followed him to Jairus' house, and only three are allowed to get in, that what you get in that scene is Jesus is sort of leading, the disciples are following. The second thing you get in that frame is Jesus is confronting things that humans have no ultimate power over. 
And so as Jesus took them to the other side of the sea, they, a storm came and creation started to revolt. And there was absolutely nothing the disciples could do until Jesus stood up. And it was Jesus who said, peace be still. And so Jesus is not only leading them, but he's leading them in these encounters to show him his authority over things that humans can't um, do on our own. And so the man possessed with legions of demons, he couldn't free himself. The townspeople couldn't do anything. And it was at the words of Jesus that he was freed. Jesus is Lord over creation. He's Lord over even evil spirits that they bow and recognize him. And then when he goes back to the other side, he's encountered with death. None of us in this room has the authority to raise up a dead person. But Jesus does, and Jesus did. That the woman in, in Mark chapter 5, she had this issue of blood that doctors couldn't heal. And it was just by touching the hem of Jesus' garment that she was freed. That in other words, what Jesus is doing is showing his authority. He's putting it on display and showing his disciples that this is what the kingdom of God will look like when it comes in its absolute fullness. There is no demonic forces tormenting you. Creation will not hurt you. Death will not be there. Sickness will not be there. And I'm here right now to show you that I'm the one your heart longs for. Now, I think this passage fits within that theme. Why? Because did you catch Mark 6, verse 1? And Jesus went away from there, Jairus' house, and he came to his own hometown, which is Nazareth, and noticed the posture of the disciples. They're following him. He's leading. He's the one in charge. He's dictating where they go. Well, do you see an authority piece in our passage? Of course you do. You see it right down there in verse 7, that, he, that there's this authority piece. He's giving authority. And the question that we have to ask is, well, what is the enemy? What's the enemy in the passage that Jesus wants to both illumine and show and that he wants to show that he conquers over it so that the disciples know that he is Lord over creation, he's Lord over death, he's Lord over the demonic, and he's, his lordship is in this passage. What's the enemy that he's fighting? And I think it's right there in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Unbelief. This whole passage is shaped by unbelief. This is the enemy that Jesus is fighting in our passage. And so I have two points. The first point is this, that, that Jesus shows the disciples the enemy of unbelief. He's showing them this. Now, I know when some of you hear unbelief, you're thinking like, come on, bro, that's the best you got for me today. Right? Like a storm. That's cool. Winds and waves, that's cool. Seeing Jesus cast out legions of demons, that's cool. Seeing a little girl who was dead come to life, that's cool. Seeing this woman who was bleeding healed, that's cool. But I want to make the case to you, unbelief has done more harm to humans than any tornado. Unbelief has done more harm to humans than any physical illness that you might suffer. 
Unbelief has done more harm to humans than death. Because at the root of the reason why we die, it's unbelief. The reason we die and we stay in our sins is because of unbelief. The reason that creation heaves against us, it's because our first parents disbelieved the promises of God in the garden. And so all other tragedies that we see in this world, they find their ultimate cause back in the rebellion and mankind's refusal to believe the word and the character of God. Unbelief is a real thing. It's a real enemy. It's not small. It's mighty and it's strong. And and that's what Jesus is doing. As much as this is about Nazareth and people in Nazareth, because the disciples are there, to me it reads as if Jesus is yet showing them another enemy that they will encounter, that they will see that they are weaker than. And it's unbelief. And so he teaches us about it in our passage. And the first thing he teaches us about it as he's showing them Unbelief is one, it's power. That, that, that think about this scene that Jesus goes back to his hometown, which is Nazareth, and the disciples follow him, and it's on the Sabbath day, which means that, that, that God's people would have been preparing their hearts, putting their affairs in order so that they could gather in the synagogue and hear someone read from the Torah and give an exposition. They came there with this desire to, to hear, and yet look, look, look at the emotional landscape of the passage. Jesus gets up, and look at what it says. It says that he began to teach, in verse 2, in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. So, whatever Jesus said, it pricked their ears. And so they asked the question, where did he get these things from, right? Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? In other words, they hear Jesus read and say something and their minds are pricked. Their emotions are stirred. There is an emotional response to what Jesus is doing. And they don't quite know who it is, but they know something is different. Something is different about this rabbi here this morning and the words he's saying. Something is different. And they can't put their hands on it, but they know enough to know that something is special. Something unique is happening. And so you get this sense of amazement that's happening in the text. And then you get to verse 2, and here's the third question. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, these mighty works are not mighty works that he's done in Nazareth. We're going to read later that he could do no mighty works in Nazareth. And so the question is, what are the mighty works that they bring up right there? Jesus' reputation has preceded him. Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 2 Jesus is getting more popular, and Mark says people from everywhere came to Jesus. And then remember the scene when Jesus was teaching, and his parents, well, his mom and his siblings came. Jesus, it's time to come home. It's time for you to leave Capernaum, and it's time for you to get back to Nazareth where our people are. And so in some way, 
his people in Nazareth had heard about what their son was doing over here in Capernaum, and they come over here to Capernaum to try to bring him back to Nazareth, and so words start to get out, and then Jesus calms the sea and casts out demons and a dead man, raises someone who was dead, stops this issue of blood, that, that his, these mighty works they're going before him. These people hear about the mighty works of Jesus, who is Jesus from the block, Jesus who grew up in their own city. Those are the mighty works. How can his hands do it? And that's the wrong question. The better question is, who is the identity of this person that we thought we knew? And then you start to see the shift in the passage. Rather than go down a path that explores the likelihood that this is God in the flesh, rather than fly to the heights of faith, they ground the plane. Like it's this, it's this turn. There's this amazement at the beginning. And did you notice what happened so fast? And it says at the end of verse three, and they took offense at him. There's a turn. There is this turn from awe and wonder to offense. And you know what it's centered around? It's centered around the identity of Jesus. This can't be God. This is the son of Mary, and he is illegitimate, and his people are right here with us. Surely this is not anyone worth following. And so they're repulsed by this Jesus guy. They're almost ready to fly. They're, they're amazed, and then they ground the plane. And Luke does something that is beautiful. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. Look right there at verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, he sent me to recover sight to the blind. He sent me to set liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled a scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on them, him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And they marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? And right there, it turns. You see the turn. And here is the turn. This turn there, you know what they wanted to do to Jesus there? Look at how it ends in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Did you catch that? They're astonished. And what Jesus is saying, what you're reading in Isaiah 61 is me. And I'm right here. And all these works that you've heard of me doing, of raising a dead girl, 
All these works you've heard me doing, quieting the sea, all of these, de- her- these things you've heard me doing, guess what? They're right here as evidence in front of you. You have scripture bearing witness that when the Lord comes, he's going to do this. And now you have evidence of the Lord coming and doing this. And yet you, blinded by your unbelief and your hardness of heart, you choose to shut down scripture and you choose to shut down all the mighty works you're hearing. That is danger. That's how dangerous unbelief is. That mere knowing scripture and seeing evidence still does not allow you to cross the threshold into faith. It's vast in our passage. Mark actually says that Jesus could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And the there is not the synagogue. The there is his hometown. Right now, there's probably 40,000 people who may live in Nazareth. In Jesus' day, we're talking 500 to 1,000 tops. But did you catch what Mark says? He couldn't do no mighty work there. Only a few This is one of those moments where, Mark, I want to know what the few is. Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Is it five? Is it seven? You just told us how long the lady had blood. It was 12 years. You just told us how long, how old the little girl was. She was 12 years old. Why, Why don't we know how many? And I think Mark's point is it's a little. Out of the entire city, there is a veil, a veil of unbelief that is vast, so much so that maybe two or three people believe and everyone else in the entire city, nothing. Nothing. Now, we got to wrestle with this idea where it says, He could do no mighty work there. I love what Keller writes about it. Tim Keller, he says, Jesus did not lack the power to perform miracles. What he was lacking in Nazareth was the proper context for the purpose of his miracles. You never see Jesus setting a mountain on fire or writing words in the sky or moving mountains here to over there just to show off. Obviously, someone who calmed a hurricane and raised a dead person could do such things. But why didn't he do so? The answer is that Jesus's miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show his redemptive power and how it operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives and our eternities transformed by him. In other words, Keller is saying that, man, miracles don't work this way. They're not just, boom, let me see how Jesus moved that mountain and then I'll believe. No, that's not how they're working. There's a different principle at work. Unbelief is vast. And unbelief is dangerous. I think the most dangerous words in the text are in verse 6. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And then he went about among the other villages teaching. Luke actually says he passed through their midst and he went away. Now, why is this dangerous? Grace just left you. 
Salvation has just walked out of the door. And you will find it nowhere else. The Lord of glory has walked out of your city. And you are left to perish in your sins. Because salvation is only found in one name. And you just sent him away. Now, my question is, what do we learn? Waves listen to him. Demons fall before him. Death obeys him. But the human heart bent upon unbelief. It seems like it's a formidable opponent in this passage. And I imagine that this is somewhat terrifying to the disciples, right? I imagine that Jesus is is sort of doing something by showing this. I think one of the things that the disciples can learn from this is as you follow me, be prepared to have your heart broken. When you come to me, your friends won't. Your family won't necessarily get it at the same time. And it's going to hurt. You'll be ignored. Your words will be mocked. It will go in one ear and out the other. And who in this room cannot relate to that? See, I know. Some of you are losing sleep. Because no matter what you say, no matter how hard you pray, no matter how much you talk about Jesus to a child or a mother or a father or a husband, that there's a veil and they don't see. And you carry that. You carry that sadness of seeing people you grew up with and you played with and you love. And no matter what you do, it seems as if the veil is thick. Jesus felt that. He says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And notice how we keep saying, and his relatives and in his own household. And neither do you. But I think another thing Jesus is showing the disciples that would have humbled them is because the only reason they are following him is because he called them. They are not better than the people in Nazareth. The only reason the disciples are following Jesus is because Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I called you. And nobody comes to me and nobody comes to the father except through me and nobody comes to me unless the father draws him you cannot will yourself to salvation that this exalts God's free grace that if God did not show up and save you and redeem you And open your eyes that you would see you and I would be dead in our trespasses and sin. And we would be right there veiled in our unbelief. Haven't you felt that? Haven't you felt that? We're going to sing one of my favorite hymns. And I know it's wordy. 
but I love it anyway. It's while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make the wretched choice and rather starve than come, t'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and we would have perished in our sin. the good news. This is humbling. And if that's too wordy for you, I got a hashtag you can remember. It's called hashtag it ain't got nothing to do with you. Y'all see the sermon title? It ain't got nothing to do with you. You know what that means? You're not a believer because you're special. You're not a believer because you saved yourself. You're not a believer because you came to your senses. You love and savor Jesus now, this moment, because Jesus drew you to himself. This ought to make us worship and adore him and love him. I'd imagine this also helps them in their future unbelief. I think when we think about unbelief, we think of it, or at least don't think of it rightly. Here's what I mean. I think it's easy to think that once I believe in Jesus for salvation, that I kind of cross over this threshold, and now I live the rest of my days always believing the good news. But we don't treat any other sin that way, right? We don't treat any other sin or struggle that way. We would say that, yes, I have been delivered and I'm now in the domain of light, but we, we, we know that, the, that, that our sin still is there. And so we go after things. We create idols. And the case that I think we learn from Scripture is unbelief is up there on the priority. That whenever we lust, it's unbelief. I'm not believing something about God. I'm not believing something about his word. I'm not believing something about his character. Whenever I'm selfish with my time, I'm not believing something. Whenever I give my heart over to something that I'm not supposed to, at the root beneath the behavior, it is a I'm not believing you're good right now. I'm not believing you see me right now. I'm not believing that Jesus is all sufficient and all satisfying right now. And so at the root of a lot of our sins, Christians, it's unbelief. Jesus is showing us this enemy. Our second point is Jesus actually sends them out to fight the enemy. Did you, did you catch what happened? I mean, you got to see that Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. That's not in your Bible. That's a, a heading that's put there to help us make sense of it. But it literally reads, he went out among the villages teaching and he called the 12 and began to send them out. It's almost as if Jesus, I mean, Mark is saying the unbelief in Nazareth, it ain't stopping no show. Jesus is going to keep on a moving. And did you notice in this passage, he actually called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two. And did you catch what happened at the end of 
verse 7. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. This is an important pivot in Mark's gospel. Did Jesus give authority over the wind and waves when they were in the boat? No, he did it himself. When he cast out demons on the other side, did he say, hey, come on, y'all come help me do it? No, he did it himself. When the woman was healed, did she, did, did she touch the disciples' coat? Now, later, they, people are going to touch the disciples' garments and going to be healed. But this far in Mark, there is no sharing of authority. Jesus is the man, and his disciples are learning he's the man. When he goes into uh, Talitha's house to raise her, the disciples watch, but they don't participate in that. But there's a shift right here in Mark. He actually gives them authority. He's turning the dial up on discipleship. It's not enough to see the enemy of unbelief. What you see Jesus is doing, now you're going to be prepared. I'm sending you out to go engage it. And I think Jesus is giving us a clue how things will play out. He will not always be with them. He will go to a cross and he will atone for sins and he will go into a grave And the people who wanted to push him over a cliff, they will eventually get him on a cross and he would die, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he would go into a tomb and he would be raised in power and authority. He would pour out his spirit and he would take a place at the right hand of the father. And the question is, how then does the kingdom continue? And Jesus says, it's y'all, bro. What I have and what I'm doing, I'm beginning to put in your hands. And the unbelief that you see me encountering and the affliction you see me encountering and the pain you see me encountering, guess what? You're invited to the party and you got a front row seat so much so that in Mark's gospel, did you notice what's right after this passage? John gets beheaded. It's as if Jesus is saying, we're not playing games, that when you go out on my behalf into the darkness, the darkness does not like the light and they will want your head on a platter. And Jesus says, and yet I still send you because no one is greater than me, because I have the power over life and death, because I just raised this little girl up, even though your head is on a platter. Guess what? You're with me now, homie. You catch what Jesus is doing? He is sharing and conveying authority. And you would think, you would think that the way that verse 5 ends and Jesus could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few, you would think that he is setting the disciples up for failure. It just said he could do no mighty works. Only a few sick people were healed. You would think unbelief is so gargantuan that when he sends his disciples out, nothing will happen. They will get the same response that he got in Nazareth. And did you catch the irony? Look at verse 13. After he sent the disciples out, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed oil, anointed with oil many who were sick and many who were healed. You see that? This is a switch. 
Jesus is the one who in Nazareth, it appears that he has no power and is fruitless, but that is not about his show of power. He is conveying this to the disciples, and when the disciples go out, they do many. What is Jesus doing? Unbelief is not ultimate. When you go out with my authority and the Spirit of God goes before you to soften hearts, you're going to see much fruit. It's powerful, but it's not more powerful than me. Last I checked, Jesus says all authority has been given to him. Last I checked, all that the Father gives him will come to him. Last I checked, as Marcellus prayed, and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Last I checked, God has chosen a people for himself before the foundations of the earth. And come hell or high water or unbelief, God will bring his people to himself and the disciples get a foretaste of it. They taste the power of unbelief, but they see the fruit of the authority and power of the kingdom. Jesus is faithful, and he will bring his people to himself, and he will bring them home. And beloved, he is pleased to use you and I, us, little old us, tripping and messing up over grace, us, imperfect us, the king is pleased to give this privilege and high calling to the people in this room right here. If you know him and have been conquered by his grace and his love and have come to him to believe and rested him for salvation alone, he has not just conquered unbelief for you. He has also commissioned you to go out into the world and to make disciples. And it's going to feel hard. No one's greater than him. And notice how he sends them out. He actually sends them out in his authority, but in human weakness. Did you catch the word that's repeated more than anything in this section? And it's not an exciting word. It's the word no. Look at that. Verse 7, or verse 8, he charged them to take nothing, right? Nothing for your journey except a staff. Don't take no bread. Don't take no bag. Don't take no money. Wear sandals and don't put on two tunics and then you don't get to stay in a hotel. You stay in whoever let you in their house. This is Jesus's way of emptying them of anything. You're going to trust me, and you're going to go out there in weakness. It's not going to be in your eloquence. It's not going to be in your money. Your money can't put nobody in the kingdom. It's not going to be according to you. As a matter of fact, I'm sending you out with nothing. And in your nothing, my strength is made perfect, and the world will see through your abasement. That's how he's sending them out. So that those who watch and see these old boring, broke-looking, raggedy-clothes people might put their trust not in the man or the woman sharing the message, but in the one they're pointing to. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 
we have renounced. Did you, did you read the passage to Zach? Did you pay attention? Paul says, we've renounced it. We've given up disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice or c- cunning or tamper with the word, but by an open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. Not ourselves, not ourselves, not ourselves, not ourselves. What we proclaim is Jesus. And then he sent them out with a message of no. It says they went out and proclaimed repentance. That is the royal no. No, brother, you can't save yourself. No, sister, you're not holy enough. No, sister, God will not just sweep your iniquity under the rug. No, these things you're building your world around, it will crumble. That that Jesus actually sends them out with the royal no so that they might embrace the royal yes of God. He sends them out with a no, 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 no. And once we get people down to no trusting in self, then they see there is my hope and there is my salvation. We believe, right, that Jesus heard no. Father, will this cup pass from me? No. Father, is there another way? No. Father, can we do this another way? No. He heard no. And he went to a cross and he died. That you and I might hear yes. Come on in. He was sold out for money. He was stripped of his clothes. He had nowhere to lay his head. If you talk about humility, and isn't that the attractiveness of Jesus? That he who is at the right hand of God would abase himself to not having a place to lay his head, to needing to depend upon women, to pay for his ministry, to not have nothing. So that in humbling himself with nothing, he now goes to a cross so that we who are poor might have everything. That is the essence of the gospel. And that is what people need to hear. And so if you're a Christian today, be encouraged with the power of the good news. And if you're a Christian and you struggle with unbelief, guess what? Jesus's atoning work was not just to do the things that we think of. Okay, he was perfect in this way, perfect in this way, perfect in this way. Well, guess what? He had perfect trust as well. Not at one point did he ever disbelieve in God's promises. And if you are overtaken with the power of unbelief, we got to go to the cross. He believed perfectly for you as well, beloved. I want to close with this hymn because I think it joins these two things together. It says, pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home.
We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. That's the same hymn that, we, that I just quoted from. It weds this why am I in because of grace. And that grace compels me to go out and to want others to be in the fold. We have a mission conference that starts Friday that I pray that you can put it on your calendar and, and hear about how God is conquering unbelief in our city and in our world. Come and hear about what God has been up to. Come be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to do the same where we are. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless your people. I pray that your word would sink deeply into our hearts. Allow us to not be taken aback and away by unbelief. Allow us to see that you're strong and mighty and you've conquered it for us and that we are perfect in you. Father, keep us humble. Father, I pray for those in our families and in our midst who don't know you. Might you be pleased to use us, broken vessels, to bring many to glory. I pray for Christ's sake. Amen.